Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar and our guest for this week, Craig Servillo. So the plan, we are taking a rather broad-ranging view of the historical threads that weave into Nazi Germany on the show, as you know. And this week, we're going to start taking a look at what happened after 1945. Specifically, we're going to take a look at post-war justice and the fate of perpetrators. Now, the next few weeks, we'll take a look at a new documentary by Ricky Gerwitz on the accountant of Auschwitz. And this week, we're going to kick off with the ongoing research of Craig Servillo. Craig is writing his dissertation about the career of the German lawyer, Rudolf Aschenauer. Now, what makes Aschenauer interesting for our purposes here is that he became the lead defense lawyer for some of the worst Nazis. We're talking about a man who began his career at the Einsatzgruppen trials, defending the leaders of the murder squads in Russia. The history of the Einsatzgruppen proper is covered in some of our episodes on Reinhard Heydrich in bits and pieces. Eventually, we will get around to doing a full episode on that and tapping Chris's expertise on the subject. But for now, we're going to take a look at the man who defended them in court after 1945. Aschenauer's career didn't end there either. In fact, he went on to become famous by filing appeals for sentenced war criminals and perpetrators. His real influence, though, was in the way he tried to shape the public narrative about how Germans thought about the trials and crimes against humanity by weaving together narratives of German suffering to create moral equivalencies that excused those crimes. Aschenauer was, as Craig will inform us in greater detail, extremely active as a public intellectual in Germany, publishing right up until the year before his death. And he even wielded influence across the Atlantic in US senatorial committees. Craig himself is a PhD candidate at University of Florida, I first noticed his work when I found out he was a fellow editor on the New Books Network, where we both interview for the German Studies Channel. And he also happens to be working with Chris's former advisor, Norman Goda, at University of Florida. So we're pleased to have him on and hear about how his research is unfolding. Craig has meanwhile been so good as to join us and talk all things Aschenauer and, of course, his place in shaping both the practice and memory of post-war justice. So without further ado, the interview. So, Craig Savio, welcome to the program. We're very happy to have you here. Yeah, uh, it's great to be here. Great. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you come from? Uh, how did you get into the uh, discipline of history? What really drives you? 
Well, um, just a little bit about me. I grew up in I'm in Massachusetts. I was always interested in history, even in, in all the way back in middle school. There was there was always my favorite classes, and I I think like a lot of people who study 20th century Europe, I, I got interested uh, reading about World War II. And so when it was time for me to do my undergraduate degree at the University of Southern New Hampshire, I knew right away I was going to be a history major. And um, neither one of my uh, advisors at the time were modernists, so I did a lot of ancient and medieval history. Never sort of changed my interest in in more modern 20th century history, uh, but I, I did take a lot of classes about, you know, the Middle Ages, Rome, religious history. And so, you know, when I'm looking to read something in history, aside from what I do, uh, those are the books that I read sort of for fun. When I went to graduate school, I said I had a unique path to graduate school. I started at the University of Pennsylvania getting my master's in, in liberal studies because I was, you know, interested at the time in all these different things, uh, philosophy and literature. And I didn't really know what period of, of history I wanted to really nail down with and work on. And so I was in a class with a, a gentleman named Ronald Granary, and it was an international history class. And we'd read a book uh, by Isabella Hull called Absolute Destruction, which is about the genocide of the Herero. It's an excellent book. You're here. It's an excellent book. Yes. Uh, um, and so I was like, wow, this is something I could really see myself doing. And I was like, very interested in it. So I thought I would do World War One or German colonialism or something like that. And then time rolled around and it was time for me to pick a thesis at Penn and I was going to work with Ronald. And at the time I didn't read or speak any German. And he's like, well, you really can't do that because you don't have the requisite language skills yet. And so he sort of pushed me in the direction of uh, post-World War II trials. And I wrote my thesis on the Ollendorf trial because all the trial transcripts are available in English. And that sort of started me down this this path and how I became familiar with Ashnauer was working on the Ollendorf trial as he was Ollendorf's attorney. So I knew of him. I've known of him for a while. And then I went on to get a second master's in history at George Mason. And I put, I still continued to work on Ollendorf specifically. It wasn't until I started the PhD process at the university of Florida that I sort of really had to narrow down on what I was going to do for a dissertation. And I knew I wanted to work on trials, but I knew I didn't want to do the one book, one trial, one article, one trial. I was looking for a different way to approach trials. It was a little different than what had been done in the past. And, you know, I'd, I'd been reading books about, you know, all these trials and Ashenauer's name kept popping up here and there, here and there. And uh, I'm sitting in my advisor's office one day and I said, you know, think there's something to this, but I don't know know what yet. Um, but I'd like to like see if I could explore this this topic. And and he sort of looked at me and he says, you know, I think there's a CIC file on, on Rudolf Ashnauer. And back in the 90s, he was on a commission in front of Congress to get a lot of Nazi era records declassified. And this apparently was one of the files. So he went over to his file cabinet and dug around and handed me just happened to have the CIC file in his file cabinet and amongst, you know, thousands of other pieces of paper. Um, and that's how I got started with, with history and this project. Yeah, it was very, very um, sort of fell into it, um, had an interest. And then he had this, this stack of records and that, that's how I got started with this, with this project. 
Well, I'll tell you, uh, as someone who also did their master's thesis on the Ollendorf trial, um, I think that you chose the, the correct way uh, to get into the profession of history. Documents first? <laughs> well, and it's great if your advisor can just hand you a, a, a packet of uh, sources <laughs> to get you going too, right? Yeah, that that made it, uh, you know, that made the initial stages of it a, a lot easier. I was, I was, I was stunned that he, you know, he just had this laying around in a, in a box. But that's how it works out sometimes. So that's how you started down this this path towards the dissertation that you're working on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what your dissertation project is? Tell us maybe a little bit more about Ashenauer and what themes you're trying to get at here. Sure. So the dissertation, I, I hesitate to call it a biography because um, it's really not a biography, but it is it is primarily about Rudolf Aschenauer, his career, which spanned you know, four decades, um, and a, a career where as a lawyer and, and someone with a PhD, the war crimes and war crimes trials and defending both suspected and convicted Nazis was all he did. He never, you know, he didn't practice tax law or, you know, property law or anything like that on the side. This, this was a, something he was passionate about. He believed in entirely until the end of his life in, um, he, he was born in 1913 and then he died in 83. So he, he was on this one particular cause throughout his whole professional and personal life. He was born in, in Regensburg, Germany, uh, not too far from Munich. He um, grew up in a very typical middle-class background. His father was a, uh, a bureaucrat, a, a, a low-level bureaucrat. He worked for the rail service. Um, his mother was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, no siblings, no indication as to why. He has no siblings. Um, the Ashnowers were extremely Catholic, and and Ashnowers Roman Catholicism is something that we will talk up. I will bring up a lot in this interview because it's um, it's essentially important to who he is. He remains very devout his whole life, through high school, university, and beyond. Um, I mean, he was in sang in the choir. He was in Catholic fraternities. He forged lifelong friendships with. Uh, important members of the clergy. And so he he's also very much of that generation. Uh, you know, that world war, that generation that Michael Wilt talks about that, mm -hmm. who sort of experiences World War One, but doesn't have, you know, didn't experience combat or and you know, certainly Ashnauer being born in 1913 is at the end of that generation. You know, he was only five years old when the war ends. But as we'll I'm sure we'll talk about he 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 brings up World War One a lot, um, so to suggest or to dismiss just because he's a little on the young side that they, he didn't have a, a World War One experience. At least he thought he had a World War One experience. He certainly had the Weimar politicized experience. Uh, yes, he definitely did. And uh, throughout his young life, he had a he was always inclined towards uh, right wing politics. He he felt excluded at times from some more right wing groups because he was so devoutly Roman Catholic. He struggled to reconcile that early in his life, um, but he seems to have, have been able to get past that. He doesn't join any political parties until 1938 uh, when he finally joins the Nazi Party. 
and I'm not sure what motivated him at that particular time to join the party, but it was right after he finished his doctorate. So it could be he was just too busy writing a dissertation to think about filling out the membership form for a for a, a party. How old was he at that point? In when he finished, he was twenty eight. I'm sorry, twenty five. Twenty five. Sorry, math not not all a right. skill. So so he's twenty <laughs> years old when when Hitler takes power, and he's and he's lived all this time without joining the party, huh? Yes, yes. It's it's very curious to me. Um, as to why he waited till 38. He, and he joins the party in 38. He doesn't really, I mean, he practices law in Munich. He signs up for the military. He volunteers after the war begins. He is not deployed until 1941. He spends almost a year on the Eastern Front in an artillery regiment as a lieutenant. And then he comes back abruptly, resigns his party membership, and begins working in the propaganda office in Munich. And this is truly one of the great mysteries of Aschnauer, uh, is why he resigned his party membership, for one. Two, how he was able to sort of maintain a job within the party. And, and I wish I had better answers to these questions. They're... Uh, they're nowhere to be found as of yet. Um, there, there is a collection of his private records that are still sealed until his his widow passes. So I'm hopeful the answers to some of these questions will be in there. But uh, the the archival record to this point does not have those answers. Do you have your favorite unsupported speculation? Um, my unsupported speculation would probably be he was uncomfortable with the way the party handle Roman Catholics and their dis sort of disdain. He does mention on and off throughout his life that, that he was a little uncomfortable with that, but he certainly wasn't, uh, he, he certainly didn't stop believing in Nazi ideology. I mean, that, that I know for certain. Uh, so that my, my, my speculation would be, would have to do something with his Catholicism, but, um, I, I would be hesitant to really push that real hard. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, without the, the documents, what can you do? Right. So after after the war ends in 45, Ashnauer is quickly pushed through a denazification hearing, and he, he is deemed sufficiently politically reliable to practice law. And this is when he begins his career defending war criminals. He, his first real trial is actually the International Military Tribunal, where he, he plays a minor sort of clerical role, helping the other German attorneys do things. He has no speaking part, no, you know, he's not even really in the courtroom most of the time. After Nuremberg, with the subsequent trials, there's obviously a, a great need for lawyers because they're going to, you know, have 12 big cases and try, you know, hundreds of defendants. He gets assigned to work on three cases at Nuremberg, the subsequent trials. He works for the IG Farben trial. He defends Heinrich Gatnau, who was sort of a minor, relatively minor Farben employee who managed a plant uh, that used slave labor in Czechoslovakia. He represented Heinz Peterson at the justice trial 
Um, and then, of course, his big trial, his sort of coming out party, um, where he really made a name for himself was at the Ohlendorf trial, uh, where he was not only the he was the lead defendant, a uh, lead yeah, lead defense attorney for the lead defendant. And it was at this in these three trials that you really see the beginnings of what his his lifelong narrative is going to be. And in um, if you guys want me to talk a little bit about that now, I can. Well, you could jump into that if that's where you're feeling the flow going. I also have a question at some point. I'd, I'd really like to know how he becomes involved in these trials specifically. How does he become? In in these three trials or trials more generally? I'm, I just want to be clear. Well, this would be the beginning of his career. And at that point, I can understand he sort of acquires this reputation as defendant of anyone accused of war crimes or crimes against humanity. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll address your question first. So after he's allowed again to practice law, I mean, he, one, he's, he's basically looking for work, you know, he's out of work. And so his, his participation at the International Military Tribunal is partly because he needs a job. Now, that is not to say he doesn't believe in what he's doing at the time. He, he does, but he, he himself even sees the first trial as sort of justified. He's okay with, with that trial. It's, it's all the other trials that he, he begins to rail against. Um, he, when, he, when he gets the Farben trial, he, he actually believes that he, he wants Gatnow specifically because he believes Gatnow is innocent. And then he picks up the other, you know, the the Peterson trial as extra work as well. How does it land in his lap, though? Right, because you say he's cleared for law. He's sitting around one day, and then he finds himself, "Hey, you're going to go argue in front of the International Military Tribunal." What what happens there? It, it, well, I mean, Peterson requests him. He's got now. He's assigned. Ullendorf also requests him. Um, he's he's got a reputation even early on as being um, a passionate advocate. Um, and I, I think in the cases of some of these guys, they feel like that that's what they need because they're guilty. <laughs> right. And it, it's funny that, you know, you ask how he gets assigned to specific trials. It, I mean, a lot of it is sort of ad hoc, right? Like they need, they need so many lawyers that, I mean, just in the in the Farben trial alone, there's twenty defense attorneys because they're all entitled to their own defense and their own attorneys. And there's, you know, not a lot of attorneys hanging around. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the army trials, too, you know, a lot of those Germans are represented by American lawyers. There's just simply not enough. German defense attorneys that have been given the okay to practice law. What was the threshold for, for that? What, what was the relationship between denazification and the selection of these attorneys? I think the threshold is rather fluid. Ashnauer is an interesting case in this respect as well, because he was working for, as an informant for the Americans at the same time. This is why they have this CIC file on him. And it's and again, this this is purely speculation. It could be that he made some kind of arrangement that he would inform because his he was informing on far right German parties from like 1947 to about 1950 for the Americans. 
it's not clear if there was some kind of deal made because he his denazification process he basically coast, coasted right through it, and there didn't seem to be any real investigation into his activities. I mean, it's hard to tell whether there was some some deal or it was the panel was overwhelmed with work or they needed attorney so desperately. I wish I had a better answer to that question. In his case. Have you compared with other denazification files? Because the process around some of the Gestapo guys is pretty thin too. Yeah, and, and in for the most cases the, the lawyers are thin, but there's there seems to be more that they have to go on with with lawyers. Their their activities are a little bit more documented. You know, they have maybe they have writings of their own, public writings. But no, I have not done an exhaustive search of all of the defense attorneys that practiced law at Nuremberg and, and compared his trial to, uh, you know, his denazification process to theirs. Um, it's it's an interesting question. I just, I haven't done that. So just before we move in back onto Ashnauer and like the other issues you're addressing with this narrative of trials he becomes involved in, for the benefit of our listeners, because we're kind of talking around the issues here, what are the major processes and what are at stake in that because Ashnar sort of runs as a through line through them. That's what makes him so interesting to you. When you say processes, what do you mean? The trials themselves. Oh, you want to know the major trials that he Yeah, like grand scheme. Just briefly, what's at stake in each of the major prosecutions that he's involved in so that our listeners can get an idea of what he's actually doing. He has, I would say, six major trials that take place from 1947 to his last major trial in 1965. You have the three trials at, at Nuremberg, the three subsequent trials, the Farben trial, the judge's trial, the Eisenskropen trial. The Eisenskropen trial is really his big one in terms of his early career. That is the, the coming out party for him as he gets famous after this. He attracts a more diverse group of allies than he had in the past. He comes into a little bit more financial resources. It's at the Einsensgropen trial that you really see the beginnings of his narrative. And it he goes at a couple of things at the, at the Einsensgropen trial that are critically important to him. One, war in the East was really, really bad. And therefore, German conduct in the East had to be really, really bad. They were fighting a total war, and this is what happens in total war. He also starts the, well, the Allies committed war crimes too. He starts that with that line of argument there. And he, he very rarely, Ashnauer is funny, he very rarely talks about his clients in his trials. They're big, you know, he's, he's, he goes at it in terms of something, you know, bigger and more philosophical. You know, he, he doesn't, he very rarely mentions Ollendorf by name um, in either one of his, you know, in his opening or his closing. Um, he, he's a grandstander. You know, he's, he, he would be, you know, good on television if they had, you know, if he was on TV. So it's at the, so he's, he's got those two major issues. He also, you know, he, he talks about superior orders, which, you know, that defense is largely thrown out, but he, he does, he brings it up over and over again. He, he also challenges the validity of the trials themselves. You know, they have no jurisdiction. 
those kinds of issues. Obviously, he loses the Ollendorf trial. Ollendorf is found guilty and executed. The other two Nuremberg trials, he actually gets both Gatnow and, and Peterson acquitted. Using some of the same narratives, but those, those trials are a little different because they're a little more procedural. Um, and I think for our purposes, the procedural stuff is not, not quite as interesting. After the Nuremberg trials, he, he starts to work with the Dachau army trials, and he doesn't try any of them himself, but he does handle all of their appeals. And it's interesting, and, and it's, it, I think it's mostly because they overlap. You know, the, he's busy at Nuremberg while the, the Dachau army trials are happening. So he can't be in two courtrooms at once. But when the appeals process for a lot of these guys start, he wades into that. And he takes up the appeal of Joachim Piper, who's one of the lead, two lead defendants at the Malmody trial. And are you both familiar with the Malmody massacre? Yes, but our listeners are not. Okay. So during the Battle of the Bulge, the Germans you know, come through Belgium and they capture several hundred American servicemen at a town called Malmody. And they essentially march them into a field and execute them. Uh, they're not treated as prisoners of war. They're simply, they're simply executed. Um, and Joachim Piper allegedly gave the order to do so. So after the war, of course, these guys are arrested and put on, put on trial. And at the initial trial, they are, they are basically all found guilty. Um, there were 76 defendants at this trial. And I believe 70 of them were found guilty, most of them sentenced to death. So Ashnauer takes up his appeal process. And it is this, this trial here that's sort of the aberration because he, he looks across to the United States for help. You know, he sort of seeks out people who both want to bring trials to an end, who want to, who think trials are unfair. He reaches out to Joseph McCarthy. He writes to McCarthy during this trial and McCarthy actually responds. And, and this is sort of a fascinating side story, his sort of relationship, bizarre relationship with Joseph McCarthy. They, they exchange letters. So he takes up Piper's appeal. Ultimately, he gets Piper out of prison and Piper lives the rest of his life until the 70s in the German countryside, until he's actually uh, murdered in the 70s by some people who were upset that he wasn't executed. Um, then he has he, he defends a Werner Herzmann at the Ohm trial, which is the first uh, major German trial. And here he sort of shifts gears to starting, he wants to start talking about how Germans need to put this in the past and that these guys should not, we shouldn't be, you know, bringing up old wounds and dragging these guys who've become upstanding members of society into courtrooms and bringing up their war experience. Cause after all the war was really bad. And so, you know, he keeps, he, he resurrects that. And the Ulm trial was another a trial of Einsatzgruppen and officers. This was something that, he was in his wheelhouse, right? Yes. Yeah, and I, I, and since you mentioned it, it's it's it is important to note that he tried seventy six minor cases in of Germans 
by in front of German courts throughout his career. And over half of them were Einsatzgruppen members, you know, either regular soldiers or lower officers. He 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 seemed to have a particular interest in defending these particular guys. And it would be helpful if he just come out and say why, but uh, he doesn't ever say, you know, I take these particular cases for any particular reason. Do you think it might have something to do with the line that he's pushing that he wants to argue that the war in the East was just bad, that that's what total war looks like? Uh, so Einsatzgruppen cases would fit into that message? That's what I would suspect is the case. I, I also wonder, you know, I think he's also defending his own war experience ah. as well. Again, it's, I don't have all of the information on his war experience. It's, you know, his, when I requested his military records, they were, they were quite light <laughs> um, when they arrived. And so it's not clear how much combat he saw. I mean, he definitely saw combat. It's not clear if he, you know, committed atrocities himself or witnessed atrocities. But it's true, he, he definitely has a large amount of sympathy for what these guys were doing and went through. I think also part of it is he takes these cases because they're available as well. I mean, this is his, you know, this is how he makes his living. And he takes the case, and he's, and by, you know, 1958, 1960, um, there aren't as many attorneys doing just this. And this is all he does. So he's, you know, by then, definitely by late, you know, by late 50s, he's, he's the guy for Germans to call at the Ohm trial when he represents Werner Herzmann. Herzmann's in prison and he, that's the only guy he wants to defend him. Uh, he's, a, he's, fa he's pretty famous at this point in, in those circles. But I, I, I suspect uh, you're right, Chris, that it is, it is a lot to do with the narrative as well. It, it fits the way he views the war and how he views German history. And, and when we get to the end of his life, I mean, he writes his last book in 1981, just two years before he dies. Um, and the book is all about the nature of warfare in the East. So after the Ohm trial, his next uh, major trial is Herbert Kapler. Kapler was a Gestapo officer in Rome. And Kapler was responsible for the massacre at the Ardentine Caves where he took 215 uh, or so Italian civilians out to a cave and shot them and then blew the cave up. Mm. Um, and after the war, the Italians were, were pretty keen on keeping Kapler. Do you point out a lot of really interesting reasons for that, though? Why is he useful to them? Kapler were being responsible for the largest massacre of Italian civilians. He's great poster child for the post-war Italian government to look tough on Nazis. You know, they were so desperate not to be seen as collaborators. And they were very fearful of Italian communists who had, you know, had a pretty significant presence in the country. And, you know, the democratically elected Italian government was worried that if they looked weak on Nazis and, and weak on Nazi criminals who committed crimes against Italian civilians that this could seriously put their government's survival in, in question. And, and to demonstrate how much they believed this is that the Italians passed two amnesty laws that both by name 
excluded Herbert Kapler. Hmm. Like he was mentioned. <laughs> um, not that we're going to keep, you know, people who committed certain crimes or whatever. No, he, he was singled out and, and they, they refused to let him go until he actually, <laughs> the story of his escape is, is, is interesting. He was in an Italian military hospital in the, in the, the mid seventies and his wife, whom he married while he was in prison, they had a prison relationship. They were married in a prison ceremony. He was terminally ill with cancer. She snuck into a hospital and he was so old and frail at the point she was able to fold him up into a suitcase and roll him out of the hospital, uh, put him in the back of a Volkswagen and drove him back to Germany. And the Italians didn't notice. War criminal in the trunk trick. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They didn't notice for several hours. She was across the border by the time they noticed. So, and, and the Italians, they, they, they fought very vigorously still to get him back. They, they wanted him returned. The Germans refused to return him. And Ashnauer, of course, was still handling his case. And Ashnauer even tried to float the, the bargain that, well, maybe we'll try him in front of a German court. But then his case sort of ended because he, he was very ill. He, he died several months later. He, um, Followed by the Kapler case, he defended uh, Wilhelm Boger at the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial mm-hmm. uh, in sixty in sixty five, and this is sort of his last great well his last great trial, his last big trial. There's been a lot written about the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial. Uh, there's two really good books, um, one by Devin Pendis and one by Rebecca Whitman. But Boger is sort of a he he was an interrogator at the camp. He's he's famous for coming up with a particular torture device that they called the Bogert swing. Very unpleasant. And Ashnauer had a hard time defending Bogert because Bogert was so sinister. And I mean, he tried, you know, the, the same tropes that he's done in other trials. Um, you know, but the, the problem with the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial is, is largely that because of the way German law is structured, um, you really can't get, people on the periphery you have to get sort of the worst of the worst mm-hmm. and, and this is this is who guys like boger were people who were sadistic they had to you know you had to be able to prove that they had gone beyond their sort of mandate as a camp guard or or whatever that they committed excesses is the term that they use a lot yeah i know this is sort of parallel and not related to Ashnauer directly but can you explain that particular peculiarity of german war crimes prosecution yeah so under german law there's there's really only two you're either a mur- you can either be charged with murder or you can be charged as an accomplice and there's this famous famous case that demonstrates this peculiarity in german law so it, it's called the bathtub case and so you have two sisters um, and this was this is a real case in Germany. Two sisters. One is pregnant, has the baby. The sister with the baby asks the other sister, you know, can we do something about the baby? And the sister, the other sister drowns the baby. Now, the sister who commits the drowning, the actual physical act of drowning, is an accomplice. And the woman... You, because you have to, you have to have uh, a malice of intent, and so the mother that suggested drowning the baby is is the murderer, even though she doesn't commit the physical act. Right. Whereas under our system, we don't make the distinction. You have to, 
they the Germans call it base intent. You have to have base intent to be convicted of murder. So the woman who wanted the child dead and orchestrated the the killing of the child is the one who's guilty of murder, even though she doesn't commit the physical act. So for war crimes under German law, it's very, very difficult because you have to prove that these individuals in particularly, well, I'll use Bogart as an example. You have to prove that they have base intent to kill, cause harm, torture, et cetera, et cetera. You have to, so you, you see in the Auschwitz trial, you only have defendants that are really the most perverse. You know, you have a, a camp orderly that goes around injecting gasoline into inmates. You know, he kills 40 people this way. But you can't get under this statute, you can't get people who might have been standing in a guard tower. Or, you know, there's no common conspiracy. There's no... You know, you, you have to get them for the excesses and they're not even put on trial or convicted for what they would see maybe as legitimate. Say a fleeing prisoner is shot in the back. Those, those people can't be even put on trial under this framework. You know, there's just no, and proving base intent for anybody is very difficult to try to prove with in somebody's, you know, in their head and in their heart is extremely difficult. So you have to pick out people who have long track records of these kinds of abuses. It just, the German law just doesn't have the mechanisms uh, to deal with these crimes because to say, you know, murder or accomplice doesn't really do justice to crimes against humanity. You can only prosecute somebody and throw somebody in prison for murder. You know, you just put them in prison for murder. Um, it doesn't, you know, demonstrate the enormity of what they've done. And the reason that it had to be murder is because the statute of limitations for everything else had, had run out already, right? Yes, yes. So you say that Bogart was a particularly difficult client for Ashenauer mm -hmm. because he was just so nasty. How does he compare to some of the other high-profile clients that Ashenauer had represented before? Bogart is different. One, he's, he's relatively low-ranking for... A, a big Ashnauer client, you know, Kapler was, you know, a Colonel Ullendorf was obviously a Brigadier General. Piper was a commander of an entire Waffen SS unit. Bogart was, you know, a, a captain or, um, our equivalent of a captain. And he, he, he simply was a, a camp interrogator. Not exactly. He's not a soldier. He's not out. You know, a lot of these other guys, you know, these other guys are, in Ollendorf's, in Ollendorf's, in Ashnauer's point of view, are, are soldiers. You know, he liked to represent soldiers because it fit into that, again, that narrative that, you know, war is really bad. But Bogart invented a torture swing. Um, doesn't exactly fit very neatly into what he's trying to accomplish at these trials. Uh, I mean, he tries, you know, he tries the whole, you know, these people could have been partisans, um, you know, he was trying to get information to save German soldiers, um, things like that. But yeah, so Bogart is sort of, I mean, they're all bad guys. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong, but uh, Bogart doesn't fit his, in those respects, doesn't fit his normal clients. He doesn't have the same kind of bourgeois respectability. 
Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's funny how they twist these things in their minds to get themselves to these places. But Ashnow was very comfortable with with that notion of sort of a veneer of well, maybe it would be it's okay. Whereas Bogert, you know, he's sort of an outlier, and I mean, he he still defends Bogert Bogert vigorously, but um, he knows. I think he knows very early that there's very little he can do for Bogert. Where does this fit into the bigger picture? Where does Bogart go from here? How does it build into Ashnar's narrative? Well, I think Bogart, Bogart doesn't really, I think for Ashnar, it doesn't really help his larger narrative because one of the things that's interesting about the, the, his last you know, big trial, um, it's the only one of his major trials he doesn't write a book about. Hmm. He writes books on the Ollendorf trial, books on the Malmody trial. Book, uh, he wrote a book on the Ohm trial. He wrote two books about Herbert Kapler. And he writes, you know, he writes a whole, uh, he writes two other books about, you know, the processes at Nuremberg and what the allies did wrong and, and all this. And then he writes his last book about total war in the East. He, he completely skips, skips this trial when it comes to his writing. And he's a, a very prolific writer, 11 books, probably over a hundred articles. And he, he gives a lot of public speeches he talks very, very little about this trial after it's over. And he doesn't try too many more cases after this. You know, the Frank Fair Astros trial is late in 65. He has a couple of more minor cases, uh, 68, 72. 72 is his last trial. And it's a small local trial dealing with camp guards and there really isn't even much to go on with that. It's very short. So his his career, oddly, sort of in, in, in big courtrooms, basically ends after this trial. And he focuses on writing. Like I said, that those last couple books about, writes another book about Kapler and then writes a book about the war in the East. It's very difficult to patch these trials together because, you know, the, 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 the specifics of each trial and, and Chris, as someone who's written on a trial, you know this, the specifics of each trial are enough to get bogged down in. And when you're, and when you're talking about five really large trials, it's been one of the major challenges of this project is trying to, to draw lines while wading through all of the detail and try to come up with something that sounds coherent and nicely packaged. Uh, of course, that that was a challenge that Ashenauer himself was trying to deal with yeah. uh, throughout his professional life. You just told us about all of his writings. What was his grand narrative? How, how did he present continuities between these trials? And and I guess have you seen his narrative change at all uh, in the wake of one of these trials? I would say that his his grand narrative is is this. So. And he doesn't talk a lot about this necessarily in each of his trials, but he, he also gives a lot of public speeches. And he gives one very big speech in 1953 to a group called the League of German Expellees and Those Denied Their Rights. It's a long name for an organization, but there you go. Um, and, and, and in this speech, he sort of lays out what his like core – issues are with the whole thing. First of all, the allies committed war crimes that they got away with, the sort of U2 argument. 
you know, look what they did to our cities. Look what the Russians did to German women after, you know, as they come into the, you know, come into the country, which, you know, certainly is true. You know, the, the, the Russians committed horrible, horrible crimes on German civilians. So you have the whole U2 argument. The war is really terrible in the East argument. You also have communism is, he really hates communism. And he, he talks an awful lot about how, look at these communists. We told you so, talking to the Americans or talking to the British or talking to the Italians. You know, when he's defending his clients, he says, you know, look what these, what, look what communists, you know, Soviet Union communists do. Um, you know, they have gulags. They have, he talks about Ukraine at one point. So he, he does this whole pointing, see, we tried to, we tried to warn you. He also has very sort of, it's going to sound oddly similar to uh, Nazi objectives. Uh, Ashnauer also wants all German territories, historically German territories, returned to, to the Germans after the war. Um, and he advocates for a while that the Germans shouldn't sign on to any collective defense with the Europeans until this demand is met. Um, and of course, he also wants the end of all prosecutions and the return of all German prisoners, no matter where they are. Um, you know, but he, he, he has a territorial component. He, he stops just short of, of saying race and space. <laughs> you know? And that, that's the kind of message that he would have been pushing in uh, talks with expellees, right? Because yeah. they were the people that had lived in the spaces that had become Poland. Had right? become Poland or, you know, became, you know, you know, Czechoslovakia or whatever. So, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the, the, the territories, uh, the collective defense, he was absolutely opposed to collective defense unless these demands were met. He had an, an affinity for, you know, any, any right wing parties, any right wing organizations. He, um, you know, he was, he was a voracious letter writer. Um, one of the challenges of this, of doing archival work for this dissertation is that, you know, he wrote letters to so many different individuals that when you sort of go to the German archive database and type in his name, he comes up in a whole bunch of different places. And most of the time, it's just one letter that he wrote. That person may not even have responded, but he, he writes to government officials. He writes to academics. He writes to clergy. He writes to other lawyers, all pushing this, you know, come and join me in this point of view. You know, he writes to Americans. Like I mentioned Joseph McCarthy earlier, he testified in front of the United States Senate over Malmody, over torture allegations at Malmody. One of the reasons he is so prolific is that he he reaches out to everybody. You know, he's sort of a, I guess, a go-getter. Um, you know, and he he he, he remains so passionate, um, which is one of the things about him that I I find disturbing as well as fascinating is that how does he, re, you know, he remains unrelentingly committed to this issue and he doesn't really change to, you know, to answer that part of your question, he doesn't, he doesn't change. And even in 81 at the end of his life, you know, he finishes this last book and it's the same argument. You, you want to think that people change and evolve over time. I don't think he did. Um, 
and I find that to be striking as well, that he never once says to himself, well, maybe, you know, I push this a little hard or, oh, maybe this isn't exactly right. Uh, no, he never, he never does that. He, he shows no, never shows any contrition for the individuals he defends or the, the warped version of history he sort of pushes. Speaking of pushing it, though, he does reach out to all of these different groups and other parallel networks that are also connected to the trials, also connected to the defendants. Who is Ashnauer associating himself with? And like, how does he build that network out, though? Um, so he has a couple of major constituencies, the clergy, both Protestant and Catholic. But because of his Roman Catholicism, his ties to the Roman Catholic Church both in Germany and in Italy, are extremely strong throughout his career. He meets Bishop Jonas Neuhausler while defending Ollendorf. And Neuhausler is the, the Catholic bishop of Munich. During that trial, that's where they first meet. And they sort of form a lifelong friendship, partly because of their shared Catholicism, partly because of their shared disdain for war crimes prosecutions. And it is here that Ashnauer starts to put together an organization with the bishop's help to finance the defense of these criminals, uh, these suspected Nazi war criminals, the, the committee church aid to prisoners. It's, it's got a, it's another long name. <laughs> um, and where Ashnauer makes, becomes the manager of that fund. And the, this fund gets donations from regular people, from the church, uh, from, you know, you know, most, some very wealthy right-wing people. Uh, and so that's where the network starts. And from there, he starts to incorporate other constituencies. He's very, very interested in, in getting veterans groups to be involved uh, with this issue. And, and he's very successful doing this. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. In, in the case of Herbert Kapler, Kapler wasn't a soldier per se. He was a member of Gestapo. He was a police officer. And, and typically veterans groups had shied away from trying to help those kinds of defendants. They were more than willing to step in on the behalf of soldiers, but not so much police officers, Eisenstropen members. But because... At, um, Ashnauer had such good relationships with various veterans groups. Um, they actually were willing to step in and try to help Kapler as well. Um, and they donated uh, money to Ashnauer's organization to do that. And they checked in on his case periodically because, you know, Kapler was incarcerated in, in 1947 and stayed incarcerated to the 70s. So, you know, that was a long drawn out process. So you have the veterans groups. You also have, mem you have other lawyers. There's a there's a lawyer circle uh, called the Heidelberg Jurist Circle, and these are sort of conservative lawyers who get together and discuss. <clears throat> I mean, they discuss lots of issues, but you know, in the fifties, early fifties, late forties, you know, war crimes is on the top of their list. And sort of, it's here where Ashnauer sort of hones his academic skills in terms of practicing the law and writing about the law and writing about these issues, again, with a veneer of, of respectability. 
and, and he finds sympathetic. This is this is a group of of conservative lawyers. They don't have any liberal lawyers in this group, so they're they're sort of all like minded. So you have you have veterans groups, you have clergy, you have other lawyers, and Ashnauer sort of is able to bridge the gap between these three sort of groups, partly because of his personality, partly because he's actually exceptionally good at what he does and he he actually he was a very very good lawyer he he should have used his powers for good because uh, um, he um he was described often by even americans as being sort of this larger than life personality um and people were drawn to him and he was an excellent public speaker so i i don't want to put it all on him and his charisma or whatever, but I, I think I, it would be unwise to not say that that was a significant factor in his ability to get these groups to work together. And, and, I, and I, I certainly don't want to suggest that they were in lockstep all the time or that they, he had them running as a well-oiled machine. You know, these, these parts were all moving in their own, in their own ways um, and he was just able to have a string that sort of ran through them, but he wasn't, I don't want to mean to suggest he was like orchestrating their, all their movements and all of their things um, and all of their causes. Uh, but he was able to extract what he needed at the time from these groups. And they saw, they saw someone who could advocate for their points of view effectively in him, you know, so it's a two, there was, there was a two way street, um, particularly in the speech that I mentioned earlier um, that he gave to this league of expellees where he talks about European defense, this was a big issue for, for veterans groups, you know, that why should they put their lives on their line for Europe as they're, you know, prosecuting people who served with them. And so Ashnauer was a good advocate also for these points of views. So I would say those are the three biggies. Those are the three biggies. Of course, he had contacts within far-right political parties. The Socialist Reich Party, which was banned very early, he had contacts within that party. He actually defended them, sort of a one-off, defended them to see if they could get be reinstated as a party. So he, he had contacts well amongst the German right, but nothing nothing like those three groups. Were there particular parts of his narrative that appealed differently to these different allies that he had, or did did his his picture of what was happening and what had happened uh, have purchase with all of them? I think, for the most part, a little they they sort of bought into the whole thing, but it's definitely true that each group had certain things that they were more interested in. In the case of the veterans groups, they were they were interested in you know, how bad the war was in the East, um, that, you know, they, they found that narrative very compelling because it sort of excused them, even though they weren't on trials themselves, maybe excused them. They could feel like, oh, well, there might've been some excesses, but we didn't really commit crimes because look at how terrible it was. The, the, the clergy, certainly Catholics for the American trials in particular opposed against opposed to the death penalty. And it's odd that Ashnauer sort of incorporated that um, when dealing with members of the clergy, but, you know, certainly death penalty, anti-communism is a big one. 
real big for the clergy side and the, the veteran side. Um, but a uh, new Hausler was very, very concerned with communism in, in his letters to Ashnauer, they talk a lot about communism just sort of as a sides. Um, you know, they write letters to each other during the Ollendorf trial. And then, you know, they sort of ask, well, how's the trial going? And then, then they launch into this <laughs> discussion about how dangerous communism is. And for the lawyers, you know, they're, they're conservative lawyers, so they certainly don't like communism and they don't, um, but they're interested in the procedural issues that were these trials just, do they have jurisdiction? Do the Americans even have the right to have these trials? And in the German case where, you know, were these trials even necessary? So there, there are common thing, things that they all believe. I think each group has an issue that they care a little bit more about than some of the other ones, but he's able to blend these things together. And so he has a, a way to like appeal a little bit to everybody. But I, I don't, I don't think it's a stretch to say that they all had sort of a general worldview with things that maybe the, the one through five would be different, but they all essentially agreed on these things. Do you see echoes of Nazism in this worldview that's developing on the right in post-war German society? Oh, absolutely. I, I see it in I see it in him in any of his public speeches that he gives. He's a little bit more careful in trials with the way he uses language. But in, in, in the speech that I that I've referenced a couple of times, he he talks about both world wars. Um, he talks about stab in the back, which is, you know, a famous right wing talking point after World War One that they were stabbed in the back. He completely rejects the notion that the Germans were guilty of starting either war, either World War One or World War Two. He's obsessed with traditionally German territories and keeping German-speaking people together. He's definitely an anti-Semite, although he's he does try very hard to hide that. Um, but in some of his speeches to smaller, like-minded groups, it sort of seeps through, particularly when he talks about that, that part of the reason that the war in the East was so bad is because of, you know, communism, which is linked to Judaism. And, and so, yeah, no, I definitely see echoes of, of Nazi thinking in his thinking. And, 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 Again, as I've said a couple of times, it strikes me that he never really reevaluated that, that he sort of took that with him to the end. Could you tell us a bit about the place of anti-Semitic thinking in the way that both Ashenauer and some of these members of the clergy thought about the trials and the investigation process and all that? Sure. Um, so, and one good example of this is during the Malvady trial, which is one of the, the army trials. Very quickly during the trial, allegations of torture arose, um, that interrogators were coercing confessions through torture, physical torture, not, uh, and then other kinds of methods. They have a, a mock trial that they do to get guys to confess and so on. But the accusations of torture seem to gain particular traction because of the origins of many of the interrogators. 
Many of the interrogators were German Jews who fled Germany to, you know, after 1933, you know, they fled to the United States. And so when they came back to Germany, Aschenauer and Neuhausler and, and people of this ilk sort of would euphemistically describe these people as avenging angels. So basically the connotation is you have Jews returning to Germany to sort of seek revenge against Germans. And I want to make very clear, there's no real evidence that physical torture took place in any of these places. And often these, these people were recruited for this job because they could speak German and English. It wasn't that, you know, they were chosen because the Americans thought they'd be particularly cruel or something. Um, you know, this, this thinking is this, this argument is completely false. But it's also entirely in line with national socialist anti-Semitism, right? Like the idea that, that the Jews are coming to destroy Germany, the war is over, and, and the case that they would be implying is that the Jews are now getting their revenge, right? Right. And, and despite a real lack of evidence for these confessions, these coerced confessions, this story gained a lot of traction both in Germany and even in the United States because of this sort of underlying anti-Semitism. It had credence with even people because they, the German, the Americans took opinion polls and, and you can see from these polls that the skepticism of the, of the, of the fairness of, of, of the, the trials, the army trials in particular, and the, that they thought, oh man, maybe there was some coercion going on. It was quite high among even even Germans that may have not been, you know, ardent Nazis. I mean, the the subsequent trials had a twenty percent approval rating among Germans. Uh, the army trials even less. It was closer to eleven percent. And so this narrative, it, this this had some traction. This this was definitely there. And I think Ashnauer believed it. I think Ashnauer definitely believed that torture was taking place. I don't think he he was like, "Oh, I can use this." Um, I, I think he believed it. Um, and in fact, there was a, the American lawyer who defended Joachim Piper, uh, William Everett, who was from Atlanta. He also believed it till the end of his life that they were tortured. Um, you know, and it's 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 not to suggest interrogations are ever pleasant. Um, but there was no, there's no evidence of real physical torture. Right. But that very much plays down the role of the quick process, which is to create a coercive environment where the subject believes that if they do not confess, they will be executed. Yes. No, I'm, and I, I'm more than happy to talk about the, um, procedural problems with these trials, because that's definitely one of them. That is not a uh, a confession extracted through the quick process should not be admissible. But Ashnauer didn't really focus on that part of it. He wanted to make the case for physical Nazi Gestapo-like torture. Uh, but the Gestapo didn't do that except the communist forthcoming book. But anyway, <laughs> they did do a lot of the quick process though. And Yes, they did. So uh, like, that's what's interesting in this is you're saying he did not choose to fight on the defensible ground, but instead tried to create an equivalency of the narrative of the Gestapo from the occupied territories. Yes. I mean, he, in his longer legal 
articles about the trials, he of course mentions the the quick process. Like on, and he attacks them on procedural issues, but those issues don't sell to his. You know, he, he's not out giving speeches about that. He very much. I think it's this is a good point for me to talk about this. He he very much leads a double life. How so? He 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 wants to be a very respectable lawyer, and he hangs out with these conservative lawyers, and he writes real legal articles on procedure and jurisprudence and those kinds of issues. But then when he's out giving public speeches, you know, it becomes very um, more base. You know, he's appealing to the sort of a low common denominator and he has the ability to interact in both these worlds. You know, he can, he can sort of get into the, into the, the mud with some of the, you know, with some of these, you know, questionable elements of society and speak to them about defense and territories and the injustices being ravaged upon the Germans by the world. And then he can go into a courtroom and sort of dress it up and make it sound somewhat respectable. And he's very, very good at this. It's one of the things that makes him so effective is that he's able to draw people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life who have the same political persuasions, basically, into his sphere and communicate with them all in a way that somebody else may not be able to do. Okay, so why did Ashenauer's message resonate with people? Was there any truth behind it? Was it just that a lot of what he was saying were ideas that had been well-developed during the Third Reich? Well, I mean, I'll start by saying that, no, I, I definitely don't think there's, there was a whole lot of truth to anything Ashenauer was saying. I mean, he may have had some things that, historical things that took place that, you know, he maybe got the dates right, but he got all of the context wrong. You know, I mean, nobody's suggesting that War in the East wasn't terrible. Of course it was. But he, he makes no room for what the Germans purposely did. Um, you know, constant, he never mentions the Holocaust for one. He, he, I, I don't know if he, he, he never really, he never makes his feelings on the Holocaust clear. I mean, I'm certain he's, you know, he was okay with it at the time, but he, he never brings it up after 1945, um, in anything he writes, any of his speeches. So he sort of just decides he's going to forget that. But I think part of his effectiveness is that a lot of these ideas are there, and he's he's articulating feelings that a lot of Germans at the time are having. And I'll give you some evidence for this, that when I was looking into the Ohm trial, I had found a collection of letters that average Germans were writing to the prosecution about the trial. I, I guess back, you know, people used to do this. They'd write to their local prosecutor and give them their opinions, um, their unsolicited opinions. And and it's not a huge body of letters, but it's a good enough sample size that I found that like 40% of the letters were against the prosecution, thought that these guys should not be tried because, you know, it's war and bad things happen you know, that we should put this in our past and this is behind us. And there's no evidence that any of these people ever even heard of, of Rudolf Aschenauer, but they were thinking. These were the things that they were communicating in very basic language 
to their prosecutor, to the local prosecutor in this case, um, which Ashnauer happened to, to be on. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that they read a newspaper article of his or saw him around town or whatever, but I'm certainly they all didn't. And, and I, w- I, was, I was struck by even by 1958 that the, the, the percentage of people who were against the trial was so high in these la- in this you know in this sample. I mean there was 50 at least 50 percent were for it as well. So you can see that there's definitely some kind of change in thinking from the 40s where 20% or 11% in the cases of the army trials were in favor of trials to you know nearly 50. And then there was 10% that just didn't know what, what to make of it, heads or tails. So I, I, but I definitely think he's just articulating something that is there. Um, and he has the resources to do it. Um, I mean, I, I'm certain if it wasn't Ashnauer, it would have been somebody else. Uh, he's not an original thinker, I guess, if that's what you're, the crux of your question. No, I, I think the question is more about this idea that, to use the Hegelian paradox, what is actual is rational and what is rational is actual. Mm. That the ideas that the public have for some reason exist and Ashnauer is tapping into feelings that are at some level valid, but being expressed in a way that create moral equivalencies that, that are being used to justify injustice. But at the same time, Germans are struggling to find a voice in some way. Like uh, we talked before this interview about Neuhäusler, right? Mm. And Neuhäusler's version of this narrative, as you explained it to me, was that essentially Germans are Hitler's first victims, and his justification for that is because they're unable to behave justly because they're functioning under a godless regime that is replacing public morality, which in his view properly is Christian and specifically Catholic, with this sort of atheistic worldview that revolves around struggle and race and all these other things. And that people who tried to be moral were persecuted. And when you compare that with, like I was saying, when you compare that with the experience of former Catholic Center Party members, that checks out. So yes, so there's this complexity because all of German society is involved in the Holocaust in some way or another, directly or indirectly. Significant majority is involved with Nazism directly or indirectly and uh, whether through proactive or passive support. But there are still these elements of German suffering that are delegitimized or politicized in a way that's used to justify the crimes of the regime. And when there are elements of it that are true, but then they're, they're weaponized, right? And I think that's, I don't know if that's what Chris was driving at, but that's certainly what I find to be difficult to navigate in this because you have someone like Ashenauer who can come out and like you're saying, not an original thinker, but pick up all of these pieces from all across society and turn it, hey presto, into something that, well, I'm not going to talk about the Holocaust, but I am going to justify it indirectly by creating a one-to-one moral equivalency because of firebombing or because of expulsion from East Prussia, right? Mm. Um, 
So it, that, that's the question is sort of, or that's my question. I don't know if that's necessarily what Chris is driving at. I think you've hit it. Yeah. I, I, I think part of it too, with, with no, no society wants to feel like they collectively did something wrong. Right. He, he, he's appealing to a, something that, that every, everyone probably has. They don't want to be, they don't, they, they, they reject this notion of collective guilt. Right. They don't want to be seen as a society of people who committed atrocities. And, and you see this in opinion polls. The reason that the initial the international military military tribunal remains relatively popular amongst Germans is because it was putting the blame squarely on the regime and all of these these really, you know, the top guys that did really bad things. And, you know, they victimized us, too. We also happen to vote for them. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. But as you go, as the trials focus on people more and more like their neighbors, they become increasingly uncomfortable with this notion that, you know, they could have done anything about it or that they're just as guilty as, say, Hermann Goering. Right. And Ashnauer is able to tap into this this anxiety. And I would say it is one of his most effective weapons, both in getting guys out of prison, uh, gaining financial resources to try these cases. And it's not that, and he also, you know, he got very rich doing this because <laughs> um, people were willing to donate their money to these organizations to help defend these guys because they could, you know, they had relatives that were soldiers and, and things like that. So, I mean, he, he's just, he, he has the benefit of of tapping into something he knows that's there and has also the benefit of really believing it. Like Ashnauer is a true believer hmm. in every sense. Um, I'm often asked about his personal motivations and I, I can't, of course he wanted to be successful and rich. He was a very, you know, but he, uh, he really was a true believer and it does, he doesn't show any signs really of wavering or second guessing or being remorseful for the types of individuals he defends. I mean, even Otto Ohlendorf, he finds redeeming qualities in Otto Ohlendorf. And it, it's a, it's a real, real difficult thing with this dissertation to sort of map out because there's so many, you have to, so many moving parts that have to be fit in neatly. And it's, it's very difficult to do. Agreed. Chris and I both struggle with that because, I mean, the uncompromising generation, all of these SS lawyers, this is Germany's best and brightest that has gone out and done this. You have these difficult issues where the country's elite, groups of people that would normally be held up as examples of statesmen, are the ones who are going out and committing these crimes. And that creates this sort of unusable history for Germans that can't account for their own suffering in a public way. And then that gets turned around in all this messy stuff in the present day with the alternative for Germany and these other groups that want to fight memory politics about this. So it is what we have here, a case of competing notions of justice. It, like, did Aschenauer and that segment of the German people that supported his message think about post-war justice in a different way than the allies had during the uh, military tribunals or German government 
once it was reconstituted had used to justify its trials? Oh, sure. I, I think they I think they definitely have a, a, a notion of a different notion of justice. I think for Ashnauer, justice would have been not having trials at all, that war is war, atrocities happen. And unless you're going to try everybody, you know, put everybody on trial, whoever committed an excess, then it's justice by victors. It's, you know, you're putting us on trial because you won the war. Um, and for them, for that side, it's not justice. It's they are the victims in, in this, not their victims that are supposedly these trials are supposed to be getting justice for, but they themselves are now the victims. I think for the Americans, they are pretty clear on what they're what they're trying to accomplish with these trials. You know, they're trying to not only gain some measure of justice for the victims of Nazi atrocities, but they're trying to teach the German population pedagogical lessons about democracy and the rule of law. You know, Telford Taylor, in his Anatomy of the Nuremberg Trials talks about this goal at nauseum that, you know, the Americans really believed, Telford Taylor particularly really believed that these trials could be used to reincorporate Germany into the West to sort of recondition them to be a democratic society based on the rule of law. And, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that despite all of their the trial somewhat procedural problems they they were fair to the defendants but they also you know the americans had noble goals for these trials in the case of the germans it's harder to tell because german law is just so ill equipped to handle these kinds of cases just their statutes just did not allow for justice to be to be rendered in any significant way for these crimes. Now, that is not to suggest that the, the judges who tend to be more conservative weren't, you know, the biggest proponents of, of having these these trials, particularly in in the cases of a lot of Ashnauer's smaller German trials. You know, the judges are very pro-defense, um, and a lot of his his guys get off. You know, it's 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 partly that they don't the judges don't see it as justice. The German one is hard because it's hard to parse out where it's just the, the failures of the German legal system and where it's the judges. Because I, I don't know if you're familiar with how the Germans try cases. It's, it's just panels of judges. It's not – there's no jury. Mm -hmm. And the Germans actually don't produce trial transcripts. You just get the summaries from the, the judges. And it's a shame. Protocol. It's a shame, yeah, because you can't it, – it's difficult to parse out sort of a judge's personality that way. Whereas you're dealing with the Nuremberg trials, you get everything a judge says. You get everything that everybody says. So you can you can make a little bit more informed decision on on what they what they're thinking, what they mean at the time, you know, what their sort of overall view of you can see if you read enough of somebody speaking, what their sort of overall take on this proceeding is. And it's really difficult with German trials to do that, because you just have the summary, uh, which is very legalistic. And so it's hard to say what the Germans, the German judicial system thought would be justice in these cases. I think in the case, I think of with the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial, because these guys were so, were sort of the worst of the worst, you know, all of the defendants had committed 
horrible excesses. I mentioned the guy with the gasoline syringe already. That these that this was more to them. I think this was more closer to justice because these are guys that exceeded their mandate, if you will. You know, these were all these guys were proven that they went beyond orders that were issued to them. You know, German courts took seriously superior orders in the ways that American courts did not or British courts did not. So, you know, everybody at the Frankfurt House's trial had exceeded their orders. They were excessively cruel. I think for those people, I think they think that I think they think that was more justice for them was getting the excesses, getting the the sort of the the lepers out of their society. Another way to Frankfurt Astros trial was another way for average Germans to say dissuade their own guilt. Because if you if you put these horrible characters, Bogert, the guy with the syringe, they have this one case of this guy lighting somebody on fire. If you you put those guys on trial and you put their atrocities out in the open, everybody looks better. All right. Well, uh, if if I could slip in a, a non sequitur here. I've got something that I wanted to share with you, and I think you know maybe maybe it'll find a place in your dissertation. During the Einsatzgruppen trial, in the context of this effort to make make the case that you know the war was terrible uh, and the Allies did the same thing, part of the the Einsatzgruppen trial was accusing the uh, members of the Einsatzgruppen of engaging in hostage taking. Uh, and reprisal executions, and uh, one of the defendants, I think it was Blavel, but I'm not sure, brought up that you know the Americans had had said they were going to do the same thing, that they were going to execute or imprison 10,000 Germans for every uh, American that was killed, an American prisoner of war. Uh, and Musmano, the the judge, shot this down. He said, "Show me the documents," and and they didn't have it. And then somebody else brought it up later on in the trial, uh, but nobody. Nobody could produce evidence that there was any truth to that. Well, buried in the OSS reports is discussion of offering a threat to imprison 10,000 Germans for every American flyer that is killed. And then later on, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, in the United States, still during the war, took on this proposal as well. And they were actually discussing it right after the Malmody massacre because they wanted to prevent a, a repetition of something like the Malmody massacre. So while this was never put into place, there was some discussion of this exact arrangement. And apparently somebody leaked it to the defense uh, in the Einsatzgruppen trial because they were trying to use it uh, to make their case that the Allies had done the same kind of thing. Hmm. I find it interesting that Ashnauer himself didn't ever use that um seems like definitely something he would he would talk about particularly in his appeal for Joachim piper in the malmody trial <laughs> i mean because if they if it was leaked to the defense he certainly had access to it that's it's fascinating that he wouldn't he himself wouldn't really bring that up well and i'm just speculating here maybe he passed it off to one of the other consuls so that they could float it and and see just how well it done uh, without yeah. Without having to have uh, Ollendorf's defense uh, use it, yeah, that's and I would I would guess that's probably right. Um, I I know he he was very good about sort of sharing and 
trying to get other people a little bit of, you know, extra stage time. <laughs> well, sure. And if he's, if he's really trying to push a programmatic message, he needs other people to be echoing it too. I guess there's just, there's only one more big picture question that I have for you. And that is where are the allies fitting into this, right? Because we've talked about the competing notions of what justice is, but where, where is their alignment? I suppose, how does, how does the emerging context of the cold war play into all this? Well, I, I mean, it, it, it's a big deal, right? I mean, the cold war is, it changes the way that the Americans, the British, the Italians and the Germans all think about these trials, right? And we'll just take the Americans and maybe the Italians to sort of demonstrate demonstrate this. You know, at first, guys like Telford Taylor are really invested, and Telford Taylor remains invested in in trying these guys. But as the political situation changes and the Cold War starts to set in, and the Soviets start to become the boogeyman in the room, the Americans. In, in terms of policy, basically decide that we need the Germans. They can be the first line of defense and that maybe we should lay off this issue. And it it's not motivated out of anything other than, from the Americans' point of view, really political and military considerations. It's not all of a sudden, oh, well, Ashenauer's right, so let's just let them all go. I mean, they're not they themselves are not, I mean, there are some in the American government, the Senate, Congress, Joseph McCarthy being the most famous example that, that found sort of common cause with Ashenauer. But even, even McCarthy, it's pretty clear he was, he was doing it because he was sliding in the polls and there's lots of German Americans in Wisconsin. And he thought it would help him with that. That's how he got started with Ashenauer. He, he thought that being pro-German would help him with that demographic. Mm-hmm. So for the Americans, you can see nothing but political considerations. That's, so it, their commitment to trying these guys or to the, oh, they did something wrong, they broke, you know, they committed war crimes or whatever, that, that doesn't change. But the, the urgency or the necessity or the – or I actually should say the, the luxury of being able to put these guys on trial – teach the Germans about the rule of law and so on and so forth. It, it just, they, they felt because of the emerging threat of the Soviet Union or the perceived threat, they felt that this just could go on. They could just do away with this because it just wasn't as important. And Well, but it's also quite ineffective and it ends up turning it. They keep, they push this policy really strong for about two years. And then they just hand it over to the Germans because they say, okay, this isn't working. We're trying to jam down, you know, right. There's riots, right? Yeah. There's, like, there's lots of unrest. As I, and I've mentioned the opinion polls a few times The they're very, very unpopular. And so eventually they, they, and, and they admit the Americans internally admit that they have not met their pedagogical goals with these trials, that they have not sunk in. And one of the things I try to I'm trying to get across in the dissertation is that they, they these things didn't sink in in part, not solely because of Rudolf Ashnauer, but in part of guys like Rudolf Ashnauer and, and people of his ilk. But how could you say that they don't sink in when you like the success story of Germany is that it becomes successfully integrated into the European 
cold, cold steel union. It takes, right? it takes a long time. I, I thought you were meaning just at the, at that moment. Okay. At that. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, for sure. I'm, I'm thinking long-term here, right? Because I, I guess th- this is sort of like turning into collective guilt week. This is the question that's going around, right? But no, seriously, that's that's the really big thing hanging over all of this, I think. And and if you're trying to push the both the like you're trying to push justice for the Holocaust, justice for war crimes, completely reform society, totally denazify it, and do all of that on all fronts at once, it doesn't work. And they're pragmatic enough to abandon it. But it's it's not really until currency reforms that you get the break with the Soviet Union and the beginnings of a real Cold War. So the Cold War is in there, mm. but it seems to be that this is happening before that's the before anti-communism is the primary concern. I mean, I think there's also fatigue on the part of of Americans. The system, you know, the the, the trial system is overburdened. Um, it costs a lot of money. It's not necessarily popular in the United States. You know, they take uh, they take polls in the United States too, and 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 a lot of people pay no attention to that to the trial process whatsoever. They just don't care. So there there's not there becomes a point where there's not political will for it. Right. And um, I mean that that's definitely could be part of it as well. That you know you have individuals in Congress or whatever who just there's no call for it. Um, and so they, their priorities shift as priorities shift in lots of, you know, situations. I mean, but the Cold War is, is there, it's, it's definitely there in Italy as well, where they go the other way. They have to, they want to keep Kapler because they're worried about communism cropping up in Italy, you know, and taking over a Western European country. So the Italians, hold on hard and tight to, to Herbert Kapler and this whole notion that we're going to be tough on, on Nazis um, to keep the communists, to help keep the communists in Italy at bay. So it's, it's the cold war problem in reverse. You know, the Americans are letting guys go. The Italians want to keep guys. It, but it's, it's there. It, it, Mm -hmm. it, it definitely. And, you know, and Ashnauer uses the cold war to his advantage. If you, particularly if you look at some of his, you know, speeches and 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 trials in the in you know the fifties and sixties. I mean, he talks about the Cold War all the time because he can he can he can pound on the desk and say, "Look, we told you, <laughs> we tried to mm-hmm. warn you that these guys were going to be a problem," and you know, basically, he stops just short of saying, "We tried to do something about it," and if you'd let us do it, <laughs> you wouldn't be in this mess. Right. Um, so it's there and, and it, it's used by, it's, it's definitely used by that, by Ashnauer's side as an excuse for what the Nazi regime did. Right. So it's there. It's ever present. No, no argument. I, I totally, I see it. I see what you're saying. I am, you have worked on this from uh, you know more than most ever will so if anyone's entitled to an opinion on this whether or not you want it aired is another question (laughs) what what justice can there be what what does justice look like in a collective 
when you're dealing with a collective crime. If the if you're trying to navigate this this razor's edge between collective guilt and justice, where does it lie? And what what from your experience of looking at this were the successes and the failures of it? Well, I, I'll start by saying I am I am a firm believer in trials. I think trials, even for crimes that seem sort of to borrow from Rebecca Whitman beyond justice, they're they're so immense and so either so heinous or so large and unwieldy that uh, to put ten guys on in a dock and and try to dispense justice for the in in the, in the case of the Holocaust trials, you know, millions of victims just seems kind of, yeah, what justice is really being done. Um, you know, but I, I take a little bit more optimistic view. I think this is the mechanism that we have. I think it's the best mechanism. I think you want trial, these trials, even though, say in the case of Ollendorf, their guilt is beyond doubt. Um, you know, Ollendorf admits what he did. Um, this is the way to get a lot of this stuff into the historical record. It's a way to sort of get some kind of justice done for the victims. It's, it's not perfect. Uh, It never will be perfect. Uh, I mean, the trial of Eichmann is a good example of this. Um, you know, was it really necessary to have, you know, all of that firsthand testimony. You know, they were having people up there who never even seen Eichmann testifying about their experiences. And I mean, does it problematize the trial in terms of it being a fair trial? Yes. Yes, it does. And but it we have to decide what the purpose of a of a trial is. Is it both to dispense justice and to contribute to the historical record, or is it just a trial? And my view on this is it's okay if it's both. And I'm also of the opinion that these trials, despite their procedural, certain procedural issues, um, maybe a little lax with hearsay, maybe a little lax with rules of evidence and things like that, they were by and large fair. And I, I think that's, that contributes to their ability to render justice. They're, they're not show trials. Quite, quite the opposite. Right. Uh, huge numbers get acquitted. Uh, he, right, exactly. Huge numbers get acquitted. And there is contemporaneous documents that bear signatures for all of the major points of the indictment. Right. I mean, I, so I, I, think it's, I think it's incredibly important that these trials were done in the most fair way possible. You can, you can pick at specific Dachau trials. There were so many for certain things that you know, might have been a little bit excessive or a little bit improper, you know, things that happened at, say, the Mauhausen trial, um, this whole notion of collective conspiracy, you know, is the the guy in the guard, the guard tower just as culpable as the guy who is the commandant of the camp. Reasonable people can argue whether that should be a standard used in a courtroom by Americans. But when you take some of these exceptions out, I think by and large, these trials are fair and because they get a fair trial, I, I see justice being rendered. I'm not sure that it, you know, it's never going to be total justice. It's never going to, uh, there's just simply no way to account to, 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 to grant justice to that, 
that many victims. It's just, but this is the mechanism we have, and I definitely don't want to see us strive away for it from it. I would like to see more cooperation with international law, not less. And on that note, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. Our thanks to Craig for sharing his current project with everyone. It is not easy to put something as ambitious as a book about post-war justice writ large into a nutshell. We certainly appreciate him taking the time, and I'm sure you do as well. Anyway, Chris and I are always interested to get to know other researchers out there, and all it would take is an hour or two from your busy schedule for what would hopefully be a scintillating conversation for our mutual enlightenment. As for our wonderful international audience, exciting news as well. We have topped 1,000 listeners spread across every point on the four corners of the compass. And I certainly have to say that it's both humbling and encouraging to see this kind of response. We also noticed that uh, the stats suggest there's some classroom use out there. So we're going to continue our interviews and overview series, but please do let us know what's helpful. As we said before, we became historians because this stuff matters. So if there's something we can do to be a better resource for anyone listening out there, let us know and we'll see what we can do. Mostly, though, I'm curious to see who's turning in from Lisbon to Kuala Lumpur. A lot of these areas are not the places that I would have expected to see listeners. Like It really is everywhere. We would love to get to know our audience better. So please... Don't hesitate to shoot me a message over Twitter or email or whatever you prefer. Uh, I'll, I'll provide some links to that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll hear from you. Otherwise, though, just a few administrative notes. Short term, we got another episode on post-war justice. We're going to be chatting with Ricky Gerwitz about her new film, The Accountant of Auschwitz. So she's in a tricky position because she's trying to represent both the complexities of the jurisprudence around prosecuting guards, perpetrators who are at the death camps, and survivor narratives. So she's got a lot to balance in her representation of the issue and uh, expect a good conversation dealing with the thornier moral quandaries there. Long term, Chris is digging into Hitler. He's laying the groundwork for his next book. So you can expect some biography about the man himself in the not too distant future. And after much delay, I, I know, another installment in the concentration camp series. Uh, so, yeah, that's what you can look forward to coming down the pipe. At any rate, though, as usual, we would like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.